Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Derek. I am the director of student ministries here at the church. I work with uh, middle schoolers, praise God, um, high schoolers and college students. Um, I paused for the middle schoolers for obvious reasons, but no, I love middle schoolers. But I don't know if you've had um, months like I've had in the, last, in the last month, but I've just had tons and tons of questions thrown my way. I mean, tons of questions, and not the questions like, Derek, how are you doing? You know, is everything okay? Or, hey, you know, just real casual questions. But I'm talking about serious theological questions. And as somebody that studies the Bible, I've felt so inadequate because some of the questions that I've asked have been so difficult to answer. I mean, these are like the questions of the world, like, you know, can God create a rock bigger than he can lift? I mean, just crazy type questions. Not that question, but questions like those. And... It really culminated this week, this Tuesday, I have, um, we have um, High School Connect, which starts at 7, usually ends around 8 or 8.30. Well, we ended right around 10.30 or 11 o'clock because students just started asking tons and tons of crazy theological questions. And I was just kind of, you know, set back on my heels, you know, pulling out my Bible and, and trying to explain a bunch of them. And how this came about is we're studying Colossians 2 and... Let me just give you some background. It's not the passage we're going to study today, but just to kind of lead us into where I'm going. We were studying Colossians 2, and in Colossians 2, and in Colossians as a whole, Paul is trying to center the Colossian church on Jesus. I mean, he's trying to center them back on Jesus because there had been some stuff going on in the Colossian church, different kind of pieces and parts of different religions and kind of mysticism was going on. And Paul was telling them, you know, you guys got to get centered on the gospel. You guys got to get, get centered on who Jesus is, what he's done. That's the only thing. And the verse that we studied was one that said, don't be drawn away by the world's philosophies. Don't be taken away by the world's philosophies or any vain deceit or, or anything that seems like a plausible argument, like something that, that makes sense, that oh, this, this makes sense, this looks like a good thing to follow, that's not Jesus-centered, that's not about Jesus, that's not about the gospel. So we, and we, we, uh, I, I showed this clip. It was an Oprah Winfrey clip. And I, I, I love Oprah. She's great. Um, but and there's nothing wrong with Oprah, except that she doesn't love Jesus. But that's okay. That's what, that's, you know, that's okay that she, she doesn't. But this is the clip that we showed. It was Oprah kind of defending her faith, f- defending why she's kind of dismantled her idea that Jesus is the only way. And she's, um, the, the piece of the clip that we showed was Oprah kind of yelling up at her audience saying, There's no way that there's one way. There's no way that there's just one way. And people were, you know, there was a few people in the audience going, what about Jesus? And Oprah was saying, well, what about Jesus? You know, why can't it be the light? For some people, it's the light. For some people, it's Jesus. Some people, it's Allah. Some people, it's, you know, the the God that's inside of them. Some people, it's the trees. It's the sun. It's whatever you think it is. You get to define who God is to you. And... After we got out of that, that clip, we talked about it for a little while and, and had these discussions about, about God. And, and kids began to ask, you know, well, is, is Jesus the only way? Is this the only way? What about my friend that believes this, this religion that's kind of a little bit like that, but not, you know, there's a few things that are different. And all of a sudden, this barrage of questions came from the students. And one of the questions was, did God create sin? Why would he create a sinful people, a peop- or, or with foreknowledge, with God knowing what was going to happen, why would God create a world where he knew people would ultimately turn their back on him? And then why would he ever create a place like hell for eternal torment? If God is love, why, why do those things exist? 
Why did God have to create a redemptive story for himself? How do we know that the Bible's true? There's 27 books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old. How do we know there shouldn't be 30 or 40? And the questions kept on coming. I mean, crazy questions, and I was kind of back on my heels. You can't, it's hard to defend yourself with the Scripture when they're even asking about the validity of Scripture. Now, how was it put together? What are the pieces in the parts of Scripture? You know, how was it, you know, how do we test it? You know, what was the test to find out what made it in Scripture or didn't? You know, God creates this way to save all people, but only some are saved. And we know that. Why is that? If God is good, why is that? They even brought up the tsunami, you know, 300,000 people died in the tsunami a few years back. Did God, was God surprised by that or did God ordain it? You know, how do we deal with natural disasters where tons of people are, are you know, are destroyed? And at the end of the, 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 the night, I was exhausted. I answered some of their questions. We got to some understanding, but I went to, to bed just kind of in this tailspin of my, you know, not questioning my faith. But asking this question, turning the question that Paul asked them, saying, don't be pulled away by plausible arguments. I started thinking, well, is Christianity plausible? Is it a good idea? Is the Christian life a good idea? Is it something good that we should be doing? You know, from people from the outside looking in, is Christianity plausible? Is that the way that we evangelize and we share our faith, saying, hey, it's a pretty good idea to come to church. You know, it's good for your family. You have good morals. It's a good foundation. It keeps you out of trouble. Is Paul actually saying that, hey, Christianity is not really plausible? That what we believe is a little bit crazy? And I sat up at night just thinking about that and mulling that over in my head and saying, how, how do I respond to that? How do I live with questions like this and think, okay, wait, it may not be as plausible as I think it is. And it kind of led me to this place of saying, okay, maybe that's where I need to, that's it, I'm, I'm teaching this Sunday, that's what I need to, I need to answer this question. Is Christianity plausible? I need to get my brain wrapped around this idea of Christianity being plausible. And as I, as I was developing my, my, my talk for Sunday, I started thinking about Riverside and people and trying to you know, make something that made sense. Well, as I did, I came up with this illustration or this, this uh, idea that, you know, if you've lived in Riverside for, for a while, you know, this is probably the highest concentration of people with tattoos, right? In, t- in, in Jacksonville. I mean, if you, if you check Jacksonville. I mean, the beach has got some tatted up folks too. But Riverside's, you know, kind of the hub of where you see tattoos. It's normal. I mean, it is normal to cruise around and see people with tattoos. I got tattoos. So I started, you know, thinking about all the, you know, what's the history behind tattoos? I didn't know anything about tattoos at all. So I was looking it up, Google, Wikipedia, the whole nine yards, checking it out. And I realized that tattooing didn't spring up from just one place in, you know, in the corner of the, the earth. It just all over the place, sprung up all the time. At every corner of the earth, people have been tattooing and drawing on themselves since the beginning of time. People have been doing it. And for all different kinds of reasons. People have been tattooing themselves for tribal reasons. You know, their tribe has specific tattoos. For beauty reasons. 4,000 years ago, the Egyptian women used to do it for beauty reasons. For identification, marking people, um, you know, with with a number they did in World War II. For, you know, the military, you know, you see a lot of people with military tattoos, got their, you know, airborne, you know, second command, whatever, with little marks on it. Um, for signs of uh, affection, and for artistic expression. I mean, that's what we see here mostly in Riverside. We see people with tattoos that are artistic expression. People get really cool things tattooed themselves that mean something to them. Um, I think Phil's got Boba Fett tattooed to his leg, which is awesome. I mean, I'm waiting for Tom Rossi to to, to man up and get a Star Wars tattoo. (laughs) Come on, Rossi, is he in here? I think he was in the first service. 
But we get tattoos for all different reasons. But I wanted to kind of talk about the, the one I, I said before this, for, for affection. For affection. People get tattoos as a, as a sign of affection. And I want to kind of tell a story um, that's not true. I'll just tell you up front. Um, but just to, just to illustrate my point, um, there's two people, Rhonda and Larry. They've been dating for a while, six to eight months, and they are super duper fantastically in love with one another. I mean, they are digging each other. And they're, they're from Riverside. They've got a few tattoos here and there. And, and Larry is at the tattoo parlor on, on Saturday. It's at eighth day down there at Five Points. He's getting a tattoo, and he calls Rhonda up and says, Hey, Rhonda, why don't you come down here and check it out? I'm getting a tattoo. And she's like, What are you getting? He's like, Come down here. I'm going to surprise you. So she gets on her fixier bike and heads down to <laughs> eighth day tattoo to see Larry. And sure enough, he's getting... Rhonda tattooed to his neck and she walks in and she's she's just you know swept away I can't believe you get Rhonda tattooed to your neck and she's like yeah that's that's awesome that's great you got Rhonda on there you must really love me and she she's flipping through the tattoo book she's like yeah I was thinking about getting a tattoo and he's like hey I had the uh, I took the liberty of having Phil design you a tattoo Schling. it says Larry and I'm thinking you should get it right here on your back and so Rhonda does. She gets the tattoo, stays in the chair for about nine hours and gets the enormous Larry tattooed to her back. Now, what do you think of people when they, when they do this? And I don't, I mean, maybe some of you have done that in here and that, that's totally okay. There's ways to get it removed and I'm, I'm very sorry if it didn't work out. But that's what we think of immediately. Like if, if this whole deal doesn't work out, Larry... Really? Seriously? If this whole thing doesn't work out, then you're, you're, you're an idiot. I mean, you just got Rhonda tattooed to your neck and Larry enormously tattooed to your back. And we do some crazy things for love. Things that don't make sense, that are not plausible. Things that would be considered to be pitiful, almost, if, if that true love didn't work out, if we pinned all our hopes that Larry's going to love us forever and then Larry doesn't love us forever and we have his name on our back. We do crazy things for love. When I was just getting ready to go to college, I fell in love with my wife, Beth. And I, she kind of liked me. She, I don't know if you would call it love. She wasn't quite sure about me, but I really, really, really liked her. And we were both going to separate... Uh, separate colleges. I was going to Central Florida somewhere, and she was going up in Virginia somewhere, and we had, you know, just kind of, you know, it was just kind of falling in love, very new, at the end of the summer of our senior year, and she went away, I went away, and we talked on the phone a ton while she was away at school. Um, No email, of course, because it didn't exist, because I'm old, Um, but I was so excited, come Christmas time, to see her, because she'd been away, and I'd been away, and I mean, I was absolutely ready. I mean, I was in, I was in love with, with Beth. Absolutely head over heels, just crazy in love with Beth. And she got back a little earlier than I did, and I had baseball practice or something that last day before I came back. So I, I came back really late. And logic would have told you that going to her house where her parents still live at 2 o'clock in the morning um, wasn't a good idea. But... Well, let me give you a little bit of, just a little bit of background about Beth's dad. Um, He is, he's a nice guy. I love him to death. He's a a great guy. Some of you actually know 
Duke. I mean, he, his name is Duke, first of all. I mean, end of story. I can just stop even with my illustration. But I'm not going to because it's good. Um, he is, uh, is an ex-Marine. He did two tours in Vietnam. He was a captain in the Marine Corps, helicopter pilot. Um, in his second tour, his helicopter was, was shot down, flew into the side of a mountain, and exploded underneath him. 2,000 pounds of aviation fluid blew up underneath him, shot him 350 feet or yards or something into the air and down into enemy territory in the jungle. And he made his way out. <laughs> Alive. No broken. The largest piece of his helicopter they found, he always describes it, was from his elbow to the end of his hand. And he survived. He made his way out. So I'm headed up I-75 to come home to Tallahassee at 2 in the morning. And wisdom would tell you, don't go to an ex-Marine's house and tap on his window at 2 o'clock in the morning. But I was in love. And I was going to do it. So I arrived probably later than 2 in the morning. And I know where Beth's room is. And, but one thing I, I didn't know was that her grandmother had come in town to visit. It was Christmas time. So Beth was bunking with her sisters, and her grandmother was occupying her room. It's fantastic. Her name was Gogo. Sweet. She's passed on now. Wonderful woman. I might have had something to do with that, scaring her to death. But that's terrible. I'm glad Beth's not here for that. <laughs> So, yes, I proceeded to tap on the window, and I saw the curtains move around a little bit, a light flicker, and I thought, okay, she's coming out. And it was pitch black dark. I mean, absolutely pitch black dark. There was no security lights back then because I'm old. And there was no ADP security system in their house. I mean, and there was, it was a new moon, so there was nothing. At least that's the way I remember it because it was terrifying. So I'm standing there at the window waiting for the window to either open or for her to come out the door because I just wanted to see her so bad because I was desperately in love and all the logic in my brain that was telling me that there's an ex-Marine in there with weaponry um, wasn't in my head at all because I was clouded by the idea that I just loved her. Well, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and all of a sudden I hear the click, click. And as a person that grew up with guns, I knew that it was a gun. Um, I didn't know that it was a 45 uh, caliber pistol, but it was. And I turned immediately and said, Mr. Hammond, don't shoot me, it's Derek. I didn't say it quite like that. It was a little louder and a little more high-pitched. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. And he said, come back in the morning. <laughs> so, my point, which I hope is not completely lost, is that we do some crazy things for love. We do some crazy things for love. And as I'm think, trying to get my, my brain wrapped around this idea of, is Christianity a plausible argument? I began to ask the question, is, is love, does it always make sense when we're in love with somebody? You know, when we are absolutely head over heels, passionately in love with somebody, does our life look like it makes good sense? Or would most people say we are of all people most to be pitied? Which is our scripture for today. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through or uh, 17 through 19. Verse 17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now Paul was saying this for some specific reasons. They had kind of done what the Colossians had done and kind of you know, mixed some things into their religion or kind of were asking questions about the resurrection and how it all takes place and is that really the way it is? And Paul's saying, no, absolutely, the resurrected Jesus is, is it. And without it, life would have no meaning. This would not be a good way to live. And why is Paul saying we are of, of, of all people most to be pitied? If this, you know, we find out at the end of the, if they discover something and Jesus doesn't exist and we were all wrong, you know, would this be a good life to live? Would this be a plausible way to live, a reasonable way to live? And Paul's saying, no, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul had a good life. I mean, he, he was a man of stature, a man of intellect, had a, you know, a high standing position. And then one day, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was blinded because Jesus was so beautiful. And three days later, he was prayed for. The scales fell off his, fell off his eyes. He's, he had followed Jesus every day after that. He'd been beaten. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been jailed. Eventually, he'll be killed. For what? And he's saying here, if this thing isn't true, I've gone through an awful lot. I've gone through an awful lot. Why would someone do that? What is it about the Christian life that makes us do that? And what I'm saying this morning is could it be love? Is that the posture that we're supposed to have with Jesus? Is that the posture we're supposed to hold with Jesus? Is that why our lives shouldn't make sense? Do we love him so much that people look at us and go, man, he is crazy, the things that he's doing. If this, he's pinned all of his hope, everything that he has, everything in his life on this thing called following Jesus, if it doesn't work out, he's tattooed himself with something. And he's crazy. He's crazy. Or she's crazy. What is she doing? What is he doing? That's what Paul was saying. And I wanted some more confirmation in that, so I, I continue to search the, the Bible. And I find more of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians right at the beginning. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Paul says this. He says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He's saying, this, this thing that we're doing, this whole following Jesus thing is crazy. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us that have fallen in love, that have been swept away by our Savior, the ones that have, something's happened, we've been brought from death to life. It's the power of God. It doesn't make sense to the outside world, just like it doesn't make sense when somebody tattoos Larry to their back. We do crazy things for love. We do crazy things for love. I've got this friend. He had such a great life. I just love hearing his testimony because he, he, he uh, worked for the NFL. He's one of the chief contract negotiators for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's great friends with the, the, the general manager there. Worked in that job for a long time. Met amazing people. Left that job um, with the general manager to start a sports agency. He was like a real-life Jerry Maguire. I mean, he just, he was living the dream. He had a beautiful family, three kids, awesome house. Just an unbelievable life. And by the world standards, it was great. I mean, you couldn't complain about his life. And fast forward to six years later. He lives in Guatemala. He has no money. He's a missionary. He lives off the support of other people that believe in what he's doing. 
Now, what happened in those six years to take him from living the sweet life, Jerry Maguire lifestyle, to being a missionary in Guatemala? What happened? Well, if you ask him, he's going to give you one response. He's going to say, Jesus. He might say it three times. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus happened. I can't explain it. I don't even know how to defend it. You can ask me tons of questions. You can say, you know, it's not plausible. It doesn't make sense. Why would God create this world and people that would, in, you know, walk away from him and then redeem him? He's, I don't have the answers to all those questions. And when I get to this question of, is, is following Jesus plausible? No, I left a pretty sweet life to follow him. But you do some unbelievably crazy things for love. You do some crazy things for love. John the Baptist, when he was in prison, um, the disciples came to him and they said, what do you want to ask Jesus? I know you want to ask him a question. And he, he had one question. I want to know, is he the one? Are you the one? And the reason John the Baptist was asking that question is he had lived his life pretty radically. And if he wasn't the one, John the Baptist would have been most to be pitied. He had given everything, pinned every hope that Jesus was the one. He prepared the way for our coming Savior. I mean, he wore camel hair, lived in the woods. I mean, everybody would have thought, man, they already thought he was a total nut. And man, if his faith had been dismantled, could you imagine the tragedy being in prison thinking that he wasn't the one? And Jesus' response was, hey, for the dead raised, for the blind see, for the lame walk. I mean, he was God. And that's my response to you today is, what, what does our life look like? The challenge for me was, because this is me, this is my journey. That's why I gave you this whole backstory of me going through this, these questions and trying to figure out, you know, is this whole thing plausible? Because it makes me look at my life and wonder, am I really in love with my Savior in a way that people look at me and they say, man, that, if this thing is not real, then... You've wasted a whole lot of time. You've wasted your life. You've pinned your hope on something that's deception and deceit. And what a tragedy that would be. You are most to be pitied. Would people look at my life and say that? Would they respond that way? And I know some of you are thinking, well, I'm not packing my family up to move to Guatemala anytime soon, and that's not something that God's called me to. I hope that's not what he's saying. And I'm not at all saying that. Some of you are going to grow old here in Jacksonville. You're going to have tons of kids. And your heart is absolutely on fire beating for Jesus. And that's what God is saying to us this morning. And the question he's asking is, does, does he have your heart? Does he have your heart? See, I think there's three groups of people here this morning. Um, the first group, you've just forgotten. You've just forgotten. You're like a, a, a couple that's been married for a long time and you kind of hit this downturn and it's not as exciting as it used to be a kind of old hat and you've gotten back into this place of church is a good idea it's a great place to raise my kids it's a good thing to do but I've kind of forgotten that that fire that that thing that 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 makes you tear up and you're like I can't I gotta hold it all back because I'm a man because when you are passionately following Jesus when he has your heart it's so easy to get swept away like that. So some of you have forgotten. This morning, the table for you will be just a reminder. 
of what your life's supposed to look like, how your heart's supposed to be. And there's another group that's here that's your heart is absolutely on fire for Jesus. You're pouring out everything. You're at Hollybrook three times a week. You're at Street Corner. Anytime they, somebody asks about a mission trip, you're like, I want to go on a mission trip. When, when's the next Costa Rica trip? I want to go on the next Cuba trip. How many, do we, can we have nine or 10 or 15 mission trips so I can go on all of them? I can't wait to go on the next thing. And you sit awake at night just, you know, not feeling settled. Not feeling settled. And you drop kids off at Hollybrook and you feel nothing but guilt. Because you're going home to your beautiful family. You're going home to your easy life. And you feel horrible. And I'm telling you this morning, that's not what God wants from you. He wants your heart. And he knows he has your heart. And some of you have been deceived by something else. And he's trying to tell you this morning, that you need to rest. He has your heart. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Out of the grace that's been extended to you, your heart's exploding and you want to pour your life out for God. Absolutely the right thing to do. But feeling awful all the time and feeling guilty all the time is not what God wants us to do. He wants to know that he has your heart and he does. I'm I'm talking to that second group. He does. He has your heart and you have his. And some of you are just confused this morning. You don't know Jesus at all. You've never met him. You hear these stories about people being radically changed and you're like, that doesn't make sense to me. And you're on the outside. But something is ringing true for you this morning. And maybe this morning is an appointment for you where you're waking up, where God is now reaching in and saying, you are my child. I want you for my own. Or maybe now, this morning, you're in the process of going, whatever he's talking about is something that I need, something that I want. He seems like a pretty halfway intelligent guy. And he's following this way of following Jesus that he's saying is not plausible and doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the outside world. That's what changes people's hearts and changes people's lives. Selling people a bill of goods that the Christian life is going to be, you know, you're going to have a great life if you follow Jesus. No. What makes people want to follow Jesus is going, man, that is crazy. I don't know why any intelligent person would do that other than it's real. So as we move to the communion table, it's so perfect that we're having communion this morning because I think it's a great representation. It's a great reminder for us as Christians to see what it is we follow. A reminder of who He is and what He's done for us. It's the table. It's His blood. It's crazy. Blood poured out. We're drinking his blood. We're eating his body with the bread. Crazy representation. It doesn't make sense. People from the outside world, they're like, that is some crazy religion you follow. You got blood and body all over the table. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. But as believers, when you're looking at it, it's beautiful. There's something beautiful about the table. There's something amazing that happens when you get your heart right to take communion. Still in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, this is what Paul says. For I received from you, 
for I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, This is the cup, new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul goes on to to give a real specific warning to to the Corinthians about communion. And all I'll say to you this morning is it's not something that, that we take lightly. It's something that's very important. It's for people that follow Jesus. It's a beautiful representation as believers of something that we follow, that we take serious. And this morning, I don't know where, where you're coming from or who you are, what, you've, what you're dealing with, but in your heart, take this seriously. I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to have communion. The band's going to come and um, play some music while we, we take communion.